Hello everyone and welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. So ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to welcome back two of my all-time favorite podcasters. You will recall last year on the fourth anniversary episode of this podcast, I invited Patrick Bromley and Adam Risky, and we had just a fantastic time just reminiscing about a bunch of movies. It was one of the funniest episodes in the history of this podcast, and I couldn't wait for November to come around again. I had to get these guys back on the show, so please, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show Patrick Bromley and Adam Risky. Gentlemen, how are you today? Good. How are you, Dana? Hi, Dana. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It's, it's, and I know you guys have incredibly busy schedules, so I really appreciate you taking a little time out to join me on the show again. So, I'm not busy. <laughs> here we go. So, <laughs> so there, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about before we get into another round of random movie memories. And Patrick, I'm gonna, the first question I'm going to throw out to you, uh, just over the past week, the, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences... <laughs> has announced some significant changes to the structure of the telecast that is the Oscar, specifically that they're going to guarantee a three-hour runtime, that they're going to award some Oscars during the commercial break. But I think the most notable one and the one that sort of garnered the most response was the fact that they're now going to introduce a new category for popular film. And I'm wondering, because the, you know the internet, of course, has been going crazy over this, I have been a little bit unsure about this and I'm wondering your thoughts on a Oscar for most popular film. <laughs> um, you're unsure about it in what way? Uh, well, I'm not really unsure about it. I was just trying to be really easy <laughs> on it. I think it's the worst idea in the history of the Academy Awards, but that's it's, just my pers personal it's, thought. It's beyond idiotic. Um, and I'm not somebody who has who puts a lot of stock in the Oscars year after year after year. They continue to prove to me that just it, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Okay, fine. You want to give each other some awards. That's fine. The argument has always been, yeah, but it brings attention to smaller movies that, you know, people might not otherwise see. So a bunch of people saw Moonlight because it was nominated for Best Picture or because it won Best Picture. And hey, that's a good thing. And I can't argue with that at all. But now um, it seems to be that we have this category, Best Picture. I guess they're just acknowledging, well, these are for small movies that no one's going to see. And then we want to give a trophy to Marvel, I guess. And, you know, A, the award for popular film is the billion dollars that it makes. B, if it's good enough, nominate it for Best Picture. Who's to say that it should have its own category? And C, it's an admission, I think, by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that I feel like once upon a time, the Oscars were a thing, an award that they wanted to hand out for achievement in movies that then happened to be televised so that the rest of the world could see it. And now what they're essentially saying is, it's a TV show first um, and that the awards are sort of incidental because the only reason to do this is to hope that more people tune in because uh, Black Panther might win an Oscar, which, by the way, if Black Panther, if they hand Black Panther the Oscar for best popular film, it's going to blow up in their faces so badly when it's like it, because it's it's the definition of separate but equal. And I'm not sure you should lead that Oscar uh, with Black Panther. 
and that seems to be the the general argument when people bring up black art black panther is that you know it, it's either should be considered for best picture or not and there shouldn't be a consolation it shouldn't prize. be exactly <laughs> thank you exactly thank exactly you. Very easy it, like, should, it was entertaining i enjoyed black panther it's, Everyone calm down. We don't have to give it an Oscar. It's maybe the third best Marvel movie this year. <laughs> All right. So, Adam, I immediately thought about you when I was reading this article for the first time because it, it was clear to me all of a sudden that I think your dream of the Fast and Furious franchise getting an Oscar might come true. No, no, it won't. I'll tell you two reasons why. Okay. The first reason is... Um, I read an article maybe a day or two after that news broke, and the reason why this award is happening is because ABC is getting pressure, or the Oscar telecast is getting pressure via ABC and Disney to create this award. And I think it's basically, the assumption is give it to a Marvel, give it to a Lucasfilm, give it to a Disney live action or whatever type of movie. So... I think you're basically, yeah, as Patrick said, it's like the Marvel Award or it's the highest, it's the People's Choice Award for Best Picture, which already exists. And it's going to be a Disney movie because they have every popular movie yeah, and they own the network that airs the Oscars. I mean, the whole thing is so shady. Yeah, it's all like this vertical integration thing. And I knew if I didn't have a doubt before, I knew it was a bad idea because Mark Wahlberg was asked about it and he's just like, Oh, I think it's this, a great idea. He's like, if this was around, we would have won a couple of these bad boys. And I'm just like, who? You and Peter For fucking what? Berg? Like, also, okay, so Mark Wahlberg was in The Departed, which won Best won an Picture. Oscar? Yeah. <laughs> guys, guys, do you feel it? Do you feel it? I just got the final cut. Mile 22 is going all the way. We're going to mile 23, which is Oscar. No, I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. Like, okay, so if The Departed, which won Best Picture the year that it was up for it, it was a popular movie. Right. It was, it was like, it made a lot of money. So would that mean that Babel is going to win Best Picture that year? And oh, then I The Departed? So. so good, Babel. Oh, God. See the movie that America's <laughs> babbling about. <laughs> they can't stop babbling about Babel. <laughs> I missed the we're all connected Oscar bait. Oh, God. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah. Did you know that everything, including your soul, is 21 grams? So, all right. So we'll we'll keep an eye. I think we're all all going to collectively be keeping an eye on what Disney does. But, Patrick, you bring up a very good point about... (laughs) <laughs> you bring up a very good point about the fact that Disney owns the network that airs the Oscars. Yeah. Like it's so they're basically trying to find a way to award themselves. It essentially that's so it's what, to boost ratings like what, for one night. <laughs> they should just go for it and be like via satellite from Walt Disney World, the best <laughs> yeah, popular right? film. Yeah. Oscar. And like the way that people watch TV has completely changed. No wonder ratings are down on the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Who cares? You're going to chase ratings with this made-up award that you give to yourself. Whatever. Okay. You know, I'm just right. excited that everyone's going to finally catch up to me and be like, oh, these don't mean much. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So you rec- your most recent episode as of recording this episode right here uh, was on Freddy versus Jason. Excellent episode, by the way, gentlemen. Thank you so much for always keeping me entertained whenever you guys do a, a podcast together. It was awesome. So. Part of that podcast, you were talking about a particular convention that you go to every year. Was was it called Flashback? Yeah, Flashback Weekend Convention. Flashback Weekend. Yep. And I remember you talking about it last year. And 
I love the interactions that you talk about with the different actors. And it made me sort of want to ask the question, what were some, what if some of your favorite or some of the most bizarre interactions that you've had with actors going to these conventions? I'll start with you, Patrick. I hardly have any because I have such insane um, social anxiety that I kind of avoid it at all costs. Like, <laughs> Uh, for the past few years I've gone to this, I go with my friend Heather. She's one of the hosts. She brings me along to this VIP reception that takes place on Saturday night, which is like you literally are kind of rubbing elbows with the guests. So you get to talk to the the stars and take your picture with them. Blah, blah, blah. And she'll occasionally say, oh, hey, I'm going to go over and talk to this person. Um, and I not only will I not follow her over there, I'll take four steps back just to be further away from the interaction. So I really avoid You're 54 feet from starting. <laughs> I really avoid <laughs> contact um, as best I can because I'm a giant weirdo. So I wish I had good stories, but uh, Adam makes up for the both of us. Fair enough. He has so many great celebrity encounter stories. Fair enough. Adam, yeah. would you... Please well, proceed. Yeah, I'll tell you a, a good one and a, a bad one. Um, but to preface it, I think that my celebrity stories are more indicative just to my human interactions in life because <laughs> whereas most people like either have normal interactions or positive interactions, I seem to get a lot of weirdos. Like I get about 10 people's share of weirdos or like normal people with like weird circumstances. Um, so... Uh, would you like a good one or a bad one first? Let's start with a good one. I wrote about this one time, so thank God that it's on the public record because otherwise <laughs> I would have forgotten. So um, I met Michael Madsen and David Carradine at a uh, movie theater. They had a Tarantino week and uh, they were doing some appearances the weekend portion of that week. So you could the, the idea was you could go to the theater, buy a ticket. You had to buy a ticket in order to meet them, but they'll they'll sign whatever you have and everything. And then, like, of course, you don't have to go in the theater and see the movie, but like you can you can meet them. So um, it was at they were both at the same table. So I met uh, David Carradine first. And the only thing I remember from meeting about David Carradine was that he was he was very nice, but he just had an overwhelming cigarette aroma. And it was just something that was you, you couldn't be in that space for very long. So I move over to Michael Madsen and um, being me, I had brought a uh, Kill Bill eight by ten or eleven by seventeen uh, poster to get signed. But when I was getting his signature, I asked him about Free Willy because <laughs> I really love Free Willy and it's one of my secret shames, but it's like it's not a secret. Yeah, it's not a secret <laughs> to most people. I say that it's a secret. Go figure. So I, I, I go up to him and he was really nice. And I was there with my sister and I was asking him about Free Willy and more just just telling him how much I really like the movie. And I know from reading his IMDb trivia that that's what he, he said that there's like a handful of movies of his that he liked that he's done. And there's a hand and the rest of of them are just paycheck gigs and you know you got to pay the bills and everything um and free willy was on his short list of movies that he really liked that he did so i so i, I asked him about it and then my sister is a couple steps behind me and she's just kind of snickering and then i said what and then she goes of all the movies he was in i can't believe you asked him about free willy and then he looks up at my sister and he just goes what's wrong with free willy <laughs> 
and it's but he said it in like mr blonde voice and it was just like you could cut the tension with the knife it was great and then that gave me like an opening because i'm just like yeah me and him are simpatico and like whatever go back to the car sister so like um so i kept talking to him about it and then he was in free willy too also and then i said oh yeah what did you think about free willy too and he's just like we didn't even get to use a real whale, but you know, politics. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, Michael Madsen was really nice. Um, I think the, let's see. Okay. So the bad one was, are you, are you familiar with Charles Fleischer? The name is, is, it's escaping me right now. Just give me an association, movie association. Voice of uh, Roger please. Rabbit. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he he's super been in some other things. Yeah, super weird guy. So he's been in some other things. Uh, Zodiac. He's got that really memorable scene where he lures Jake Gyllenhaal into his basement. <laughs> That's basically him in real life. Um, <laughs> and then there's uh, he was also in in Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. Um, so I go up to his table and I had a, a Demon Knight poster for him to sign. And I was at the convention that year. I had I didn't know Patrick or Heather yet. Um, I was with my friend John, who's a friend of mine since high school, and his girlfriend at the time. So um, John had gone to the to the to the restroom, and it was just me and his girlfriend. And we went up to get Charles Fleischer's autograph. So. I get up there and then Charles Fleischer is he goes, hey, is this your girlfriend? And I said, no, it's my buddy's girlfriend. Uh, he's like, oh, well, where's your buddy? And I said, he's in the bathroom. but He's going to he'll be right back. And then he goes, OK. And then I was he kept like talking to me and I thought it was just like, oh, he was just being friendly. Like he, I was just trying to get the most, you know, bang for my buck, my autograph buck. But, but what he was really doing was he was waiting to play a practical joke on me. So he waited until my friend John gets back and he interrupts me midstream, walks out from behind his table into the aisle and then just yells out in kind of like a Roger Rabbit voice. He goes, hey, John, this guy's fucking your girlfriend. Oh and then like John, obviously, Classic Fleischer. <laughs> yeah. And then John obviously has no idea like what is happening. <laughs> and then he looks at me like, that's not right. And then I'm just like, it's not. And then like his girlfriend's just like, what the fuck is happening? So like, I think Fleischer thought that this was going to like bring the house down and it just was completely awkward and strange. And that's my lasting memory and why I can never watch you frame Roger Rabbit <laughs> ever again. I have a question. I, I keep meaning to, to reach out to and ask you this question because I don't get to any really any, any conventions. You got, uh, you're close to Orlando, right? I am close to Orlando, yeah. Spooky Empire, bro. Those oh. are in October. You need to go to one. All right. I'm putting it on the list, absolutely, and check it out this year. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have a question because whenever you and Patrick are talking about these conventions, there always seems to be a monetary amount associated with getting autographs. And I was kind of curious, like, do all people at conventions, do all these celebrities at conventions, do they all charge for autographs? Do some do it for free? And what's the most you've ever seen someone was asking for an autograph? What's the most you've ever paid? You know, something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So 99% of the time they're charging. Mm -hmm. um, if it's free, it's either because they were invited by a company to be like a sponsor or something. So they're being compensated already. Um so something like um, I saw Kevin J. O'Connor, who's been in a bunch of Steven 
Summers movies was there with a store one time, uh, a local horror memorabilia shop where I think Felissa Rose still charges, but she was still charging. Yeah, she was still charging. But um, you see that sometimes it started when I started going to conventions about 10 years ago. The standard was twenty dollars. And if you were a big star, it was maybe 30. Um, And um, over time, it's gotten a lot more (laughs) into an industry where uh, people charge for not just autographs, but they'll charge you for like a photo with them at the table, a selfie. They'll charge you for different prices based off of if you're bringing your item or if you're getting an item from them. Um, they'll, they have celebrity photo ops, which are professional photo studios doing photos for you for like really high amounts of money. So yeah, it's, it's always kind of been that, but it's tough. Like when you're at a convention and people who represent a movie that you really like or they're just people whose work you've enjoyed it's like your only opportunity that you're going to have in your right. life like to possibly meet them so is it worth it to you to to pay the money and for right. me it's been worth it um but i kind of have capped myself in a lot of ways where it makes me not want to get their autograph if it's above like 30 or 40 bucks more most of the time um the most I've paid is 70 and that was for Nev Campbell. Okay. And that was an empty feeling in a way because <laughs> like she was very nice and um, I had an okay conversation with her, but you can't get the figure out of your head when you're meeting somebody and it's costing you $70 for a two minute interaction and an autograph. It puts a pressure on the experience that the experience probably can't bear um and the most i've ever seen somebody charging was there's a there's a comic-con at navy pier which is a popular tourist destination in chicago that's happening in october and they're getting a lot of like big gets from the mcu and chris evans and josh brolin are charging 200 dollars. and with the nev campbell yeah was were there a lot of people in line i mean was she making a lot of money would you say she she definitely had like a lot of people in line on the Friday and Saturday of the convention. It kind of slowed down. I think the people who wanted it, it's kind of like when a movie's front loaded opening weekend. Right. Um, the people who really wanted it like went right away. But, uh, the, the whole, I mean, Walking Dead, I think has a lot to do with how the whole thing has become an industry. The, the handful of autographs that I have, I've had a few that I've gotten at conventions. I would say, most of the ones that I have came from meeting people at screenings or something where it's more of a free situation. Um, they're there to introduce a movie and then they stick around afterwards and okay, cool. Chuck Russell signed my blob poster, you know, but, uh, the walking dead, their cast was able to sort of charge so much and it became such an industry unto itself that they started their own convention. Um, and now so many, it, it has become a separate, a separate like agency almost where, you know, uh, agencies will have um, TV divisions and movie divisions and now they have like public appearance divisions. And so it's part of people's contracts a lot of times now, like if somebody signs on to be on Gotham, part of their contract is, hey, you're going to do X amount of these shows. And I'm guessing part of the money that they take in is going back to this agency or whatever, okay. uh, which is why we're seeing, you know, because it used to be a thing where like 
it tended to be not has-beens, but it was like people who had done stuff 10 or 20 years ago. And now, yeah, Adam just brought up Josh Brolin and Chris Evans and a bunch of people like current giant stars are doing these appearances at like Comic-Con and Wizard World and stuff and charging these insane amounts of money because they can. It The whole thing has changed. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's funny because one of the things that was charming in a way about the horror conventions the the uh the superhero comic-con type stuff has always been sort of its own animal but the thing that was kind of charming about the horror conventions was i i grew up on going to autograph shows with um my dad but they were for sports it was always like sports cards and sports autographs and sports autographs are still more expensive than movie celebrity television uh, personality autographs um so when i started going to horror conventions and i was hearing you know twenty dollars to meet bill mosley or something like that i didn't bat an eye because i'm just like well if i wanted to meet jerry rice it would cost me like 179 dollars or something like that so um so it seemed like a a bargain in a way in some kind of strange you know structure but um yeah, over over time, it's sort of evened out, and the conventions at times have ways of kind of making you feel real gross about it. Um, one example that is a running joke with Patrick and I is I was at Wizard World once, which is the Chicago Comic Con, and one of the Walking Dead people, the most popular Walking Dead person, Norman Reedus, had a booth, and I was doing... I like to do laps down convention row or down a celebrity row, which is basically just I want to see what these people look like in person. Mm-hmm. That's about it. It's just kind of, you know, gawking and just, you know, star <laughs> star saying. But I got I'm not kidding, Dana. I was maybe like 500 yards away. It felt like from Norman Reedus and his the convention center handlers ran up to me and they're just like, are you VIP Reedus? Are you VIP Reedus? And I was just like, what does that even mean? And I'm like the guy from Blade 2. I'm like, yeah. And they're just like, oh my God, you can't be here. And meanwhile, it's just embarrassing because Michael J. Fox is signing at this convention. Christopher Lloyd is signing at this convention. And no knock on Norman Reedus, but he doesn't have the long-lasting legacy of these two people who are significantly less maintenance than Mm -hmm. but i mean that's the whatever the market will bear is what they'll charge right yeah uh earlier today i recorded a uh two hour long nightmare on elm street conversation with uh with a friend of mine and i'm wondering this would just be a nice little companion piece to it if you could briefly talk about any of the actors from the Elm Street franchise you've had the uh, uh, the opportunity to meet and I'd of course start with Robert England. Have you met Robert England? I never have no. Okay. I met him once uh this was <laughs> maybe 10 years ago um and he's extremely nice. He's one of those people who really understands that he just gets the game so to speak of like meeting fans. He really just kind of knows what they want from an experience with him. They want anecdotes. They want him to be, um, you know, very charismatic, things like that. So he's he's super nice. Um, he's very chatty. So one thing that's cool about him is there tends to be a really long line to meet him. But then by the time you meet him, you get a nice story or anecdote and he just can riff on anything. So I met him. Yeah, this was like 2008. And it's funny because like it's a story that I think probably would have meant even more to me like 
five years later. But at the time, I was just circling back to the Fast and Furious. I was just sort of like an okay-sized fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. This was pre-Fast and it was definitely pretty fast five. It might've been like after Tokyo drift and I was getting a Freddy versus Jason poster signed by him. And I don't know why, but somehow it got brought up about meet the Deedles and Robert England <laughs> is in meet the Deedles, which was Paul Walker's one of Paul Walker's first movies. And then he just starts telling the, all these stories about Paul Walker on the set of meet the Deedles and how AJ Langer from my so-called life and the people under the stairs who was also in meet the Deedles. He's just like, AJ was crushing hard on Paul and stuff <laughs> like that. He's just like, I've never did he do it in the Freddie voice. He didn't do it in the Freddie voice, but he's yeah, he was just like, he's just like, Oh my God. He's like, I haven't seen meet some the Deedles, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is bitch. He's like, Walt Disney Pictures proudly presents courtship. <laughs> Sorry, I had to work up to it. But yeah, he's so I'm getting like, so anything I could have asked him when ever top this, like I'm hearing like set dirt right, and I'm right, just right. like, this is great. Like, cause you know, this type of stuff happens all the time. And it's just like, it's like AJ Langer's Adonis was Paul Walker and everything. So may he rest in peace. yeah, may he rest in peace. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but yeah, Robert England's always been a real, real nice dude. It's uh, I met last year, I think Heather Langenkamp and Amanda Wiss, and it was to the two experiences were very different. Heather Langenkamp was fine, and it was very just like, hello, oh, nice to meet you. Okay, yeah, moving on. Amanda Wiss was much more interested in like having a conversation okay. and being a little bit more loquacious. And Adam was able to ask her about working with Kevin Costner, and she had very positive things to say about Kevin Costner, which just confirmed everything that Adam already believed mm -hmm. about uh, <laughs> K. Cost. You know, I haven't met. A lot of the other stars, but what I have done is sat in on like panel discussions with them or even just had brief interactions with some of them. And the there was a year where they had a lot of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street five guests, yeah, right? Four and five. Four and five. Yeah. And it, their panels would end and Adam and I would both comment like, oh, we like those movies more now because all of these people seem incredibly nice and mm -hmm. just gracious. And what's cool about, you know, some of these franchise um, stars is that they really do understand that they're only at an event like this. You know, they haven't not all of them have gone on to huge careers. And yet here they are. 20 years after this movie came out, uh, it was their biggest shot at fame and it's still not much of anything. Um, and yet here they are signing autographs for these fans 20, 25 years later because horror fans are very devoted and very rabid and just love the Elm Street franchise or love the Friday the 13th mm -hmm. franchise. And I think they really get it and appreciate that. And so that's cool. Um, that they're sort of grateful to be there. It's not so much like, hey, I'm doing you a favor right. by signing your poster. Yeah, I think also it helps that there's a certain amount of distance for them from the experience sure. of making it because it's not uh, like, say, if you got, you know, the cast of The Conjuring at a convention and people or fans are coming up to, you know, Vera Farmiga for two hours and telling them, telling her how much they like The Conjuring. I mean, it's something where... You know, Lisa Wilcox, who is in Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5, um, you know, yeah, people are coming up to her and saying, hey, by the way, even though this movie came out 30 years ago, like, I still, like, really love revisiting it. And, and you know, it just, 
we always dub it the con bump. So like at flashback weekend every year, it's just like, which movie do we think is going to get the con bump from, um, you know, a positive experience. So like uh, nightmare on Elm street five was one because as Patrick said, like the cast was just so incredibly just nice and charming and humble and, yeah. and everything and good with fans. Um, and uh, yeah, and then of course the Wishmaster bump, which will never be eclipsed. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about uh, uh, two quick questions, uh, Patrick? During the Elm Street Five panel, was director Stephen Hopkins in attendance, or was Rennie Harlan, director of Part Four, in attendance? Rennie Harlan has never come, okay. and Stephen Hopkins was not in attendance. However, <laughs> just a. Uh, a month or two ago, there was a genre film festival here in Chicago called Cinepocalypse. It was the second year that they've done it. And one night, there was a double feature screening of Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, uh, with director Ernest Dickerson in attendance, followed up by Judgment Night with Stephen Hopkins in attendance. And uh, Judgment Night was a lot of fun. I, I don't think I'd seen it since 93 when it came out. It was a lot of fun to watch it. And then afterwards, Stephen Hopkins did this amazing interview and told these great stories and was so likable that as soon as it ended... Adam correctly pointed out something that I was already feeling, which was like, oh, Hopkins bump. Like, we just wanted to go home and watch Stephen Hopkins movies. So that- I brought my Street 5 poster knowing that he was going to be there because here's a situation where, like, I'm not paying for his autograph. I'm just, hey, would you? But I, uh, I left it in my car and was too chicken to go get it. Does that mean Predator 2 gets a bump now? Yes. Okay. Every Hopkins movie gets every, a bump. Everyone. Okay. Fair enough. Fair Predator enough. Two gets a bump for me every time I watch it because it ends so well. It, okay. That like I just I'm always left with that. I want to love it more than I do, but it definitely gets a Hopkins bump. Yeah. Okay. That was that's incredibly fascinating. Every bit of that. Thank you so much for for sharing some of those uh some of those memories from the uh, different conventions. I, am I if I'm remembering your episode, the most recent episode was it Friday the Thirteenth Part Four? Was that the big panel? Uh, yeah, that was one of the big reunions. Um, the two kind of premiere ones were Child's Play and uh, Fright Night. But they didn't do panels. They did the outdoor screenings that they would introduce and talk about a little bit beforehand. But those casts didn't do. No, they. The, well, the outdoor screenings kind of double as right, the panels. Right. So like you get your intro for the movie is about 45 minutes. Oh, okay. And they do. They do panels. But uh, yeah, the director of both Child's Play and um friday night tom holland was was there so he was sort of the master of ceremonies almost in a way do those do those two movies child's play and fright night need a bump i don't think so not really it did make me being there and i didn't like spend time talking to fiona dora for alex vincent but it did make me want to go home and rewatch the last two the two most recent child's play movies okay yeah it's it's funny because i was i was this is maybe just Patrick and I are just on a very similar wavelength when it comes to conventions, especially because I mentioned to him, I'm like, I really love Child's Play. And I really love Fright Night, but I I don't feel like con desire for these movies of getting like autographs with it. So it's funny because like something that almost needs support is like the movie you con rally around. Right. Con rally. <laughs> it also can be expensive if you're a crazy person like Adam and myself because yeah. – I'm not just going to get Lisa Wilcox to sign my Nightmare on Elm Street 5 poster. If if she signs it, now I have to go around to everyone who was in it. And now you're paying the autograph price for every cast member, including eventually you got to get Robert England, which is going to cost you. I don't know how much does he charge. I heard 80 now. 
All right. It's still less than 100. I guess I'm not like too disgusted, but that's a lot. I got I got a real life conflicted situation. <laughs> um, so I'm going to Monster Mania convention soon and Lisa Wilcox is there and she's just such a doll. And I'm just like, I want to really get her autograph. Obviously, I like Nightmare on Elm Street 5 more than 4 because I'm a weirdo. But so I got that poster ready to go. It's all ready for Lisa Wilcox's signature. And then obviously you have to get Robert England on it. But I've got this Wishmaster poster <laughs> that I need to start getting the autographs on because I looked at, according to Wikipedia, basically just looking at the cast listing and like the people involved in the movie, I could potentially get 11 autographs because these people do a lot of conventions typically because a lot of these folks that were in this movie have been in a lot of other horror franchise entries. So I'm just like, shit, the most expensive guy at this convention. Yeah. Am I going to have to go double up? Ooh, I, I just can't. No, I, I just can't. can't. So I have can't. to make I have to make a choice. So I have to hope that the rest of circle of friends of Lisa Wilcox return. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think they will. Yeah, well, I have an interesting question on that one. So you can't get two items signed at one time. You could pay for double. But yeah, you, you, you can't do any two for ones unless you really charm them, I guess. Gotcha. OK, yeah. excellent. And I'm not charming like that. And what was the I'm name? <laughs> what was the name of the convention in Orlando? I need to check out. Speaky Empire. Okay. All uh, right. Dana, I'll give you an example of of awkwardly charming because this happened last weekend. Um, <laughs> I met Fiona Dora from Curse and Cult of Chucky, and I was wearing. Um, are you familiar with the movie The Monster Squad? Have oh, you seen oh that? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so you know um, Andre Gower's Stephen King Rules shirt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have one that I bought at the convention years ago that says West Craven rules. And I went up there and the first thing Fiona Dora does is she sees my shirt and she goes, hey, West Craven. And then out of my mouth, I just go, I wish. And then I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> so that's yeah, yeah, that's about par for the course of my celebrity <laughs> encounters usually. Excellent. Okay, gentlemen, I want to I want to uh, transition into another round of what we call random movie memories. And I spent the day writing down uh, about forty to f uh, about forty five titles here. I've just uh, put them into a basket here, and I'm going to draw a name. And I'm just going to I'll start with you, Patrick. And I just want you to just give me your memories of this particular film. So we yep. the first one I have got here is two thousand and four Garden State. Oh boy. Um, I loved Garden State when I saw it. I was the right age for Garden State. Uh, I went to see it a few times in theaters because I liked the way that it made me feel, particularly at the end. So I was always chasing the way that it kind of brought me to an emotional point. Um, our friend Rob, who writes for our site, just did a really good article on Garden State and was like, okay, this I see through this movie now. It doesn't totally work for me, but that doesn't make it bad because it was important to me when it mattered. And that's kind of how I feel about Garden State. I think there's a lot of admirable things that Zach Braff kind of does. And I think had he developed into a more interesting filmmaker, I could be more forgiving of garden state, but he seems very stuck in garden state and sort of indie tweed nonsense, but it meant a lot to me at the time. And so I will always have affection for it. Adam thoughts on garden state. Uh, they're, they're very similar. I, I think it's almost like me looking back at myself in the early twenties. It's like, if I just somehow had, a two hour, you know, finely edited Fox searchlight version <laughs> of me in 2004. Like I would be just in different, but similar ways, just as pretentious and 
what does it all mean? And I mean, when you look at back at that, there's a certain amount of charm and kind of embarrassment to it. So I, I, I actually caught it on HBO about a week or two ago and it, it holds up enough, just enough. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not something I could, you know, it's not something that I'll ever turn on. I think I'm, I'm still with it. Okay. All right. Excellent. All right. So Adam, this next one is for you. Let's see here. We have 2006 Superman Returns. It's a colossal fucking disappointment. <laughs> um, I saw it opening night, and I think I went back and saw it like two or three times in theaters because I needed to know for sure that it was shit. And oh, it is. It's so boring. <laughs> and it, the only things that work really in it are clearly just residual affection from the 70s uh superman because i mean 90 percent of the work of like why maybe you like brandon why i like brandon routh in the role is because he looks like christopher reeve and it's the sense of familiarity or they're reusing john williams score but um i'm a weirdo in the sense that like i don't really love i, I feel like they still haven't made the right superman movie yet i keep waiting for it and i I just don't think that they've made a really good one yet. I think they've made like a three out of four star one, but that's about it. The Richard Dono. Yeah. yeah. Well, that begs the question for both of you of um, the Richard Donner original. And uh, what are your thoughts on that film? And what are your thoughts on Superman two and follow up to that is, have you seen the Donner cut of Superman two? I, the last time I watched Superman, the movie was a couple of years ago and I still love the first hour think i don't love all of it but yeah i think i think it works in the ways that it needs to i think its highs are high enough that i'm a fan of that movie when i was a kid superman 2 was my jam like that was the cool one i think now i'm less a fan of it just because i think richard lester does a lot of nonsense i've owned the donner cut for years i've never put it on just because i'm i'm aware enough of it to know that it's like not a movie it's just sort of this weird experiment thing that's been cobbled together um at some point i need to check it out but it would require me immediately or, or, or rather um i would have to revisit superman 2 immediately prior to that and i'm just like i don't have five hours right now to sure. devote to studying superman 2 so um, um but i still i'm a fan of the donner movie what uh well I, on the uh, on the donner cut i mean you i own it as well and it is it's a work print, essentially. It's just been right. it's assembled together. And one particular scene, which I won't mention because someday you're going to see it, is an actual screen test between Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve that they've inserted right. into the film for a particular scene. So, I mean, it's really choppy, choppy put together. It's uh, but it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting film and it's it, it makes you it at least gives you the vision of what he was trying to do, which was, I think, a little bit more serious in tone than what Richard yeah. Lester did. Uh, what, I'm, I, let's go ahead. I'm sorry. Just I'm much more interested in, in the direction that Richard Donner was taking it than where Richard Lester went with it. What about Superman Returns? Um, it's yeah, same uh, disappointing, uh, because it had come out, I think a year after Batman begins. And so it was like, oh, we're kind of seeing a rebirth of DC and they're doing some really interesting things and they're, they have a different tone. And at that time we had still somehow convinced ourselves that like Brian Singer was an interesting director. Uh, PS, 
he's not. Uh, now he's a scumbag for a lot of reasons. But even back then, I don't know why we gave Brian Singer so much leeway just because we loved The Usual Suspects. But whatever. Yeah, wanted to love it. Saw it, I think, first show, first day. Got very excited when the opening music came on and Brandon Routh is charming. Uh, what's her name? Kate, Kate Bosworth. Bosworth. Totally miscast. Yeah. It, it's, it's a movie that I've never gone back to. Despite I think I own the DVD, but I just what could I possibly get out of it? I was going to write something about it one time because my theory back then was that it is a movie that is completely uninterested in answering any of the questions that it raises. It raises this really interesting question sort of early on, like, hey, what if the world moved on from Superman and then he came back and then it has no interest in actually addressing that idea at all. And it, to me, the best sequence of the movie, and, and I'm not alone in this, is the airplane rescue that yep. takes place about a third of the way into the movie, right? It's the one moment where you're like, oh, I'm watching Superman on screen and this is cool. But they even kind of fuck that up because really that needed to be the first appearance of Superman. And instead, our first appearance of Superman is like he lands in his mom's backyard or something like we should be seeing Superman appear at the same time that the rest of the world is seeing Superman reappear and him landing on the baseball field. I mean, that's very sort of Americana iconic. I get what he's going for, but I feel like the whole movement, the whole moment is undercut by the fact that Brian Singer built up to it completely wrong. And that to me is sort of the whole movie in a nutshell. I mean, and Brian Singer clearly has no interest in baseball either <laughs> from evidence because they're already talking about the pace of play being a problem. Now you've got Superman and his dumb jet engine like interrupting midway through the game. The grounds crew's got to be furious. <laughs> also, what the Metropolis baseball team like, what is their record? Like, what are the stakes? Like, was this a uh, is, is it a pennant chase? Is it just some kind of Sunday afternoon lark? What is it? It also, I mean, the existence of Superman Returns, sort of the collateral damage was also the X-Men franchise because not that I needed to see Brian Singer continue on with that franchise, but just it got so rushed X-Men the last stand is that three yeah yeah it got so rushed and so screwed up and brett ratner having to step in and it takes james marsden away so they sort of write out the uh the cyclops character i mean x-men the last stand sort of gets fucked up because of superman returns so now brian singer has kind of ruined two movies interesting you brought up a good point about the first on-screen appearance of superman i mean that's brilliant i never really thought about that but that's that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Patrick. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's really, it's what I bring to yeah, the table. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Patrick, you're up next here. So we have 2009's Funny People. Uh, <laughs> so much like um, Superman Returns. Like, God, I want to love that movie. I want to love that movie. And I think there's greatness in it. I think it's so interesting what it has to say about Adam Sandler as a human being. And I think a lot of what it has to say about comedians is really interesting. I think its heart is in the right place. I just think, especially in the second half, when it becomes this story about Leslie Mann and the one who got away, it is not, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't all come together. I think the stuff about the comedy world and about Adam Sandler as sort of this really bitter movie star comedy star is really smart and really good i think the fake sitcom you know last week i was watching um oh i went to see eighth grade and i was thinking about bo burnham and 
I was thinking about his the fake sitcom and funny people yo teach and it was making me laugh. I was I was laughing in eighth grade thinking about funny people. I think there's great stuff in it, but I think the movie is too long and too self indulgent. I mean, this was Judd Apatow's kind of blank check movie and and too messy to be entirely successful. Now, before I ask Adam about his thoughts on this film, I I want to talk about what I thought was a missed opportunity with this movie, and that was the trailer essentially spoiling the fact that his character is going to be okay. It, you know, the trailer sets up that he's got this terminal yeah. d- disease, and by the end of the two-minute trailer, it's like, hey, surprise, you're going to be okay. So I had that knowledge going through the entire movie, like, cause I, I think the weight of what he's going through is not as significant because you know that he's going to be okay. And I thought that was a real missed opportunity as far as marketing the film. It was. And I think, you know, part of it was they were worried that nobody's going to want to go see this movie about this dying comedian. So we better reassure them. Well, don't worry, Adam Sandler's going to be fine. But like, I already don't want to see the movie about the guy with terminal illness. I want to see it even less when I realize that it kind of has no weight and no impact on the on the ultimate result of the story. But whatever. Adam, your thoughts on funny people? Yeah, um, it's a really kind of interesting movie to me. Um, I I have a different reaction to it almost every time I watch it. Um, Sometimes I really love it. Sometimes I get extreme douche chills from it. Um, I was doing stand-up comedy and improv comedy around the time it was in theaters. So from the storyline of Seth Rogen, I found it completely just fascinating because a lot of it, they take time to really kind of go into kind of how you come across on stage and building a set. And, you know, if you're the guy up there making jokes about like, you know, you farting and masturbating all the time, it's just like, he, I remember Adam Sandler's just like, do you ever want to get laid? And it's just <laughs> kind of like, no, you know, that's like, selfishly i mean like when you do comedy i mean like you want people to really fall all over you so um it's it's really interesting um from that regard i haven't watched it in a really long time um but i it's definitely better than this is 40 yes um which i think kind of has similar brentwood nonsense aesthetic Yeah, yeah So, yeah, it's the it's I, I, I really prior to that, I really dug Judd Apatow, 40 um, year old virgin still makes me laugh quite a bit. Um, knocked up doesn't age as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, funny, funny people is like it, even if it's a failure, I mean, like it's what Patrick calls an interesting failure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned this is 40. I can go ahead and scratch that off the list because that film <laughs> is in is in 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 the list mm-hmm. here. Uh, only just because I turned 40 this year, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and put that in there. Uh, what, so, nothing like that movie. Yeah. No, it's really not. So, uh, Patrick, brief it's thoughts on This is 40? December. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, your brief, brief thoughts on This is 40? It's nonsense. I mean, I feel bad, but it's just, it it it's so insular and it's so hard to relate to like how can i pay for my mansion if i don't get my record label going like okay who is this movie for besides just you judd apatow and i'm not saying that like rich people's problems aren't problems and i think there's a way to present those and say hey maybe the problems aren't so different and just because we're rich doesn't mean everything goes away like that's all fine Mm -hmm. but man none of the rest of it uh yeah and and not very frustrating and not that you have to stay with the same 
kind of economic set for your characters throughout your whole career. But I th- I mean, like when he was when he was making 40 year old virgin and knocked up, these were people who were either worked, star- at Best Buy. worked at Best Buy right. or Circuit City or like we're oh, starting Circuit out City. you're starting out their careers and stuff like that. And then like so if if you're aligning yourself with kind of like a younger 20 something comedy on kind of entourage as your 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 ensemble company um and then like you kind of pivot to like oh no we're all super wealthy now it's sort of like whiplash in a mm-hmm. in a way like um if he was if he started his career as like Nancy Myers it probably wouldn't have been as weird but like yeah to what Patrick was saying um I think that's the reason why people kind of focus in on like, why do I care that they're going to have to go from like a $1.2 million house to like a $900,000 house? Yeah. So I thought as, as a married couple, they were so much more interesting in knocked up. Yes. Yes. I'll agree. All right. So uh, let's see, Adam, you're up next. Let's see. And we have 2004's the terminal. Oh boy. (laughs) You got the right guy. Yeah. um, I think the terminal is, really good um i i i understand why people don't like it it's very sentimental and corny and kind of bad maybe um but i really like it uh personally i like it because i was i I saw it as a sneak preview like a week after i got dumped like hard by somebody and i was depressed for like nine days straight and then this was a movie that really cheered me up um but just in recent years i think that it's a i think it's aged well um i think that it has a lot to say about um just kind of white america's um the way they treat uh immigrants uh i think that it's it, it does say something about post 9-11 or it's at least kind of a time capsule of kind of the fears around that around that time um and i I don't know. I, it's a movie that I, I like enough where if it gets kind of dumped on, I feel compelled to defend it at least a little. Okay. Patrick? I've not seen it since. I remember feeling like, okay, like that was okay. I, you know, I love Tom Hanks enough that I'll watch him for two hours, just interact with a, a group of people. Um, I don't remember it that well. I didn't hate it, but I thought it was just kind of like slight or more minor Spielberg. I was looking forward to getting back to it. Um, and it's going to be, I don't know, seven years before that happens. My wife and I started out the summer, like we're going to go through Spielberg's entire catalog. Um, and then our summer has been so busy. We made it through jaws. Like we got through <laughs> the first three. So, it, uh, Judd Apatow will have released. This is 60 before I get to the terminal. Um, but I'm looking forward to revisiting it. I remember feeling like it was okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, Patrick, this one is for you. We've got uh, 2005's Be Cool. <laughs> Yikes. You're killing me with these. Um, I, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> like, I think I think Shorty is such a good movie. Yeah. I think it's so smart and it's so funny and the cast is so good. Um, and I think be cool fails to recapture all of that. I think I remember thinking, well, the rock is kind of funny. I think because I wanted to tell myself that the rock was kind of funny playing a role that, you know, we were surprised to see the rock in, but, uh, I saw it once theatrically. I 
don't remember hardly anything about it except that it was a massive, massive disappointment. And unlike Get Shorty in almost every way. Adam? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's one of – so there's a there's a select group of movies where I have absolutely zero interest in seeing its sequel because I like the original so much. Um, Saturday Night Fever, 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> Be Cool is a case where I wish that I would have followed that impulse because I, like Patrick, really – Get Shorty is just a terrific comedy, and Be Cool is uh, just about as bad, maybe worse, because it's less interestingly bad than Look Who's Talking To. It's real (laughs) rough. It's like Be Cool is just, for a movie titled Be Cool, I mean, it's maybe the the most square (laughs) thing I've ever seen. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it breaks my heart, because I'm a big John Travolta fan, but I mean, I'm not going to lie, he's made a lot of clunkers and that's one of them my memory of be cool by i've only seen it i think twice is that steven tyler can't act at all and that really took me out every time he was on screen which is understandable he's a musician but i just remember it it just really bothering me that some of these some of these uh musical artists um really couldn't act and it really thought you know this is a big this is supposed to be a big production so you know that's my that's my thoughts on that film it's, well, and that was a that that, one, that speaks to part of the whole problem of be cool versus get shorty. Get shorty kind of sees through all of it and takes the piss out of a lot of movies and talks about older movies. Oh, that was really good. That a touch of evil. Yeah, that was a good movie. But when it comes to contemporary movies, they're kind of like eh, and they're they're funny enough to kind of make fun of a lot of stuff. And be cool just wants us to invest in the talent of Samantha Mumba. Is that who it is? That is correct. And like take her seriously as a real pop star and there's nothing funny about it and there's nothing satirical about it. It's just like, she's great and she's going to be a star and it wants us to just believe in that with total sincerity. And that doesn't work for the, for the world that they're trying to establish. All right, Adam, you're up next. Let's see. Let's see. All right. And we have 2006 clerks Two. I like it. Um, it's it was kind of, I was surprised how much I liked it. I thought it was really funny. I think it's um, got some stuff like it goes down some comedy paths that I can't follow. Uh, I'm not like really big into it, as deep of the sex jokes that they go. And I think there's a few like I don't know if it's like poop jokes or scatological stuff, but like that's not really my bag. But I thought that um, a lot of the uh, kind of quieter moments, the less set piece driven moments are there's a lot of i i admire that kevin smith has legitimate curiosity on the inner lives of these guys 12 years after clerks um i think that he could have very easily you know just kind of kind of gone at them at a surface level but i think that it feels like 12 years has passed in their life experience as characters and i i I find it just interesting enough um i haven't really watched it too many times but uh yeah i'd say it's like top five kevin smith movies patrick i uh I like it i find it a little bit frustrating um because kind of like adam said i think I think all this stuff that's not meant to be funny is good. So it's like it's this comedy where none of the comedy works. But I think the themes of it and some of the stuff he's explored, because I think it's in most ways his most personal movie. And I think that's very interesting the way that it's sort of about his own career and where he was at in his own life. 
And I think all that stuff's really interesting. I think all the stuff about rebuilding the quick stop and Randall's whole monologue in the prison cell, like I think all that stuff is really good. And I think that's some of the best stuff that Kevin Smith has ever done, honestly. Uh, I also think that like most of the comedy is terrible and fails to make me laugh all the way through. I enjoy the dance sequence. Like it's there because it's there. It does. The movie does. And this is a terrible thing to say. And I'm going to apologize in advance to Brian O'Halloran. But um, this suggests that Brian O'Halloran should not be filmed in color. Uh, he looks sick. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> some of the new cast members, I mean, Zaria Dawson fits in well. Um, yeah, I really like, you know, the whole ending. Again, I think. What movie were you talking about, Adam, where you think the ending is so good that you just you literally just said Predator 2. Predator 2. Okay, so this is Predator 2. I think the ending is so good that it convinces me that the rest of the movie is really good. And it's not. It's it's flawed and it's uneven. But I think where it lands is so good and so personal that uh, that ultimately I like Clerks 2. Is there a balance for Kevin Smith? When you look at a movie like Clerks 2 where you say, you know, the parts that aren't funny are really good. The comedy is not good. Then you look at a movie like Red State, which is nothing but incredibly serious in its tone. I mean, is there a balance in there somewhere with him? I think um, his best balance is Chasing Amy. Okay. Because I think the the dramatic stuff, say what you will about sort of this idea of a lesbian falling in love with a man and some of the stuff that he maybe doesn't understand about what it means to be a gay woman. But I think a lot of the relationship stuff is very raw and very honest in terms of the male ego, which I think is some of what's most interesting about that movie. And I think the jokes come much more naturally in that film out of dialogue. He's not doing nonsense set pieces with donkey shows and like quirky characters. It's just friends hanging around saying dialogue that is funny. And that kind of gets back to the original clerks. And that is where I think Kevin Smith excels. I think when he's pushing the jokes, um, it doesn't work. And I think more often than not, he pushes the jokes. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, actually, Patrick, you're up next. So we've got 2005's The Amityville Horror. I saw it opening night because my friend was a stand-in. She worked on the whole movie. She played the stand-in for one of the kids and didn't like it. Uh, thought it was a lot of – like it, it, it just smacks of – Almost every 2000s remake, which is let's hire a music video director to make this thing look very slick. It was interesting at the time to see Ryan Reynolds, not known for his dramatic work, do something sort of not comedic. He's very handsome. Uh, He looks good with a beard. I don't know. I don't even think I convinced my friend that I liked it because I didn't feel the need to. She was a stand in. I didn't think her feelings would be hurt. But um, yeah, And, and that was the only time I ever saw it. What are your thoughts on the original? I've never seen the original. Oh, yeah, it's no. one of these crazy blind spots that I have. No, I've seen the second one, but never the original. I've owned the original for years. You would think I would have uh, made it a point to see it by now, and yet I just every year fail to put it up. You got to promise me when you do see it that you'll write a piece about it, good or bad. Mm. I, I'd really like to know your thoughts on the original film. All right, all right. That just or or email me. <laughs> that might be more realistic. Sure. Uh, Adam, do you have thoughts on 2005's The Amityville Horror? I I haven't seen it. I've never seen an Amityville movie. Um, for and this is unfair because I haven't seen any of them. But they make me feel gross just thinking about them. Okay. I don't know. Why. Like, there's certain movies. You should see the second one. It's real gross. Yeah. yeah. No. Like, I can I can handle a lot of horror but sometimes i just kind of know that i'm just not 
gonna I'm not gonna want that experience and um there's uh yeah several horror movies that kind of have that stigma and the whole Amityville thing feel that way like I think The Conjuring is more my speed where there's some kind of gloss and shine to it I did an episode on the Amityville horror the original film and I really focused on the real life events that happened at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville New York and there was of course a, a famous murder that took place there where uh, a son killed his entire family and then there really was a Lutz family that moved in and claimed to have stayed there for 28 days and then left all their belongings but by the end of the episode, you'll see that I pretty much established that they made the whole thing up. And it was a, a huge cash grab. They were able to get a book written and, of course, several movies made. But uh, it's a pretty interesting... The real story behind the house is very interesting as far as what the Lutz family did to try to you know, monetize their supposed possessed house. So it's a... Right. And I yeah, and I've listened to that episode and it scared me just listening to it. So like um, it further convinced me that this might not be a franchise that I'm going to explore. But I, it's weird because like the whole thing with the Lutz family making it up, that almost scares me more than if the house were haunted. Like it's strange because it reveals this like psychotic cynicism that you would go to these reaches to like earn money. So I don't know that the whole thing just is like everything about the seventies makes me feel like, like 99% of the people were murdered and we're just lucky <laughs> that like some, anyone made it out like with all the like drugs and their clothing and the dirt and like <laughs> murders. <laughs> I don't know. And the whole, the whole fucking like I want like one of the best movies I've seen all year just this is an old movie is uh the woodstock documentary sure but the entire time i was just like i feel like they're it's gonna be like the ring where like a bunch of hippies crawl through the tv and just stab me to death (laughs) i'm very afraid of the 70s and the late 60s (laughs) i i have never seen i've seen the original amityville horror and i've seen the remake and i've never seen any of the subsequent sequels um i know they made a third one in 3d it was part of the 3d craze um, I can tell you from my own personal experiences that the original Amityville Horror, even though I know it's not to be true, uh, is terrifying in some scenes and it's psychological terror. It is, I, I think it, it's worth watching. I think you should at least, again, I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on it at some point. I will commit to watching uh, the first one at some point. Okay. For you, Dana, I'll watch the first one. I appreciate that. Okay, so who... But I'm going to have Facebook open. We're going to chat through it. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll just record a commentary. How about... We'll, I'm just... for, while then we watch it for the first time. Or the whole commentary is just us being like, Dana, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. who, are, who are these people? I can't hear anything. Dana, shut up. I'm reading the subtitles. <laughs> I'll be like, now, Adam, what's what's happening in this scene right here? <laughs> so, uh, who, who's I've, I've lost track here. Oh, Adam, uh, uh, I think Adam's Adam is up next. OK, so let's see here. Just a second. We have 2006 is Rocky Balboa. Uh, I dig it. It's a good Rocky movie. It's probably um, let's see. Rocky ranking coming up in go. three, <laughs> two, <laughs> Maybe my fourth favorite. Oh, let's hear the other one, please. Okay, so original, yeah, Creed, okay, two, okay, Balboa, Balboa. and then here's where people are going to start throwing whatever they throw at laptops. Five before four. I put five before 
three and oh, before. four. I forgot three completely. Four is a debacle. Four is a music video. That's yeah. a, that's all four is. It's just a one big montage. It's four is when the hubris balloon burst <laughs> with the sex robot that Polly has. <laughs> and no, um, Rocky Balboa, I think, is like we wouldn't have Creed if it wasn't for Rocky Balboa. Like a lot of the groundwork that Ryan Coogler like really enhanced with Creed um, started with Rocky Balboa, um, just kind of with his you know, current station in life. And um, the the only thing that I I'm trying to think if this was more of a Creed issue or a Rocky Balboa issue that I couldn't wrap my head around was that Rocky's intelligence drastically varies across the (laughs) franchise. And by Rocky five, he's punch drunk. Yeah. And he's not, you know, he's mentally he he's just lost it a little bit. And um in Rocky Balboa, he's running a restaurant basically independently. And um, he's just very he seems more like Stallone than Rocky Balboa at that point where um, so he's running a planet Hollywood. Yeah. 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 Uh, but uh, I've I've gone to the restaurant that they shot Rocky Balboa in. Uh, it's in Philadelphia. It is. I can't remember what it's called, but if it comes back to me, I'll let you know. But it's a great restaurant and it's known for the wait staff being all professionally trained opera singers. So they will sing to you while you're in between orders. But everybody orders at the same time. So like you all order at the same time. They sing a couple of pieces and then like you eat. It's inter- it's an interesting experience um, because then, you know, it's like, oh, that was a beautiful aria. Can I have more bread? <laughs> um, try that at Lyric Opera House. <laughs> um, so I, I I do like Rocky Balboa. I think the the fight is the least interesting part of that movie because who cares if he beats Antonio Carver Tarver? I can't remember what his name was. Uh, it was Mason the Line Dixon in the movie. Um, but I think that the speech that he has with Milo Ventimiglia about getting knocked down and picking yourself back up is extremely well acted and pretty well written and um i love Emilio is my boy and uh i i met him at a convention actually and i asked him about stallone rocky balboa and this was in, before creed came out i'm like hey are you gonna do another another rocky movie and he's just like oh yeah man if sly will have me and stuff like that and then like i remember i gave him we, me and him like bro hugged and i'm just like are we friends now <laughs> but we weren't it was <laughs> Is is Richard Gant still alive? Let me just start check. He's he plays George Washington Duke in. I think so. Okay, so I mean, so there's still he eats he eats Jason's heart. He does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so is there still hope that maybe he'll have a cameo in, in Creed two? I mean, because he's 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 the best part of Rocky five in my opinion. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, you know, touch me and I'll sue. <laughs> he appears to still be alive. Okay, so. Patrick, thoughts on Rocky Balboa? Uh, uh, sure. Um, <laughs> I liked it. Fine. Like, I think when I saw it, I thought, yeah, if you're going to bring back Rocky, that's the way you do it. And it came out ar- around the same time as Rambo. And so I was like, all right, Stallone is kind of, you know, getting, taking the dust off of some of these old characters and seems to be doing it right, acknowledging their age and their legacy and sort of where these people would be in their lives, which I thought was a much more interesting way to revisit these series rather than just like, okay, here's another Rocky movie. Um, 
I don't remember the fight. I, I've only seen it once. I saw it I, maybe the day it opened, and I don't think I've seen it since. I don't remember the fight. I remember feeling like, oh, this whole video game exhibition was kind of an interesting way to bring Rocky out of retirement. You know, it's not like he's going for the title again, which would just be uh, maybe stretching credibility. But I do not have the relationship to the Rocky franchise that most men do. When I hear other men talk about Rocky, I feel um, – kind of pathetic because I just I don't connect to it as much so I'm not as invested but I remember feeling like yeah that's a pretty good Rocky movie well this question is for both of you I'll start with you Adam what what is your anticipation for Creed 2 uh I mean I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it it's probably one of the movies I'm most looking forward to for the rest of the year um but that's all just kind of residual affection for the first Creed I don't think that the whole thing about getting revenge for Apollo Creed's death by beating Ivan Drago's son is it's, it's very hackneyed and just ridiculous. But I mean, like this series can be pretty ridiculous. So I as long as it's done well, I really don't mind. But just initially, it doesn't feel as interesting to me as it did with Creed. And I think also it, there's more uncertainty with it just because I don't know. I think Stephen Capel Jr. is the director, and I I don't I I know I haven't seen any of his movies. I can't even remember what they're called. Um, but Ryan Coogler was kind of more of a known quantity. Um, and uh, it's a bummer that he's not back for this one. Patrick, I'll see it. I'm not especially excited. Um, if only because yeah, I, I, to me. Creed worked because of Ryan Coogler. Like when I first heard Creed announced, I thought it was a bad idea. And then it turned out to be a good movie. So, okay, cool. But um, like, oh, Apollo Creed's a new Rocky movie. Oh, and it's going to be Apollo Creed's kid. That's dumb. Okay, they made a good movie. But then like, oh, for the sequel, uh, he's going to fight Ivan Drago's kid. Like that's that's the first idea that gets pitched. And that's the person you fire for pitching (laughs) that idea. You're just like, you are thinking way too small. You need to go. And instead, that's what they went with. Now, can they make a good movie out of it? Sure, they have before. But uh, I, I'm I'm expecting more be cool than I am get shorty. Yeah, I, I will say that when I saw the trailer, I was I, I was on board for 95% of that trailer. And then when you see the robe and it says Drago on it, I, I just kind of because I I grew up with the Rocky movies. Those are, you know, I'm, I'm sure much like Adam, like these were. These were huge influences in my life. So I, I went into Creed, you know, a little bit. Oh, I hope this is good. Loved it. Thought it was a great film. I'm not going to see this movie until Adam Risky tells me whether or not I should see it. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I'm pretty easy to get stamps of approval on this franchise. <laughs> so I think, I think you'll, you'll end up seeing it. Okay. I just yeah. want to. All right. So, Patrick, you're up. Okay. Let's see, we've got. Oh, all right. Sorry, sorry to do this to you, but I had to put one, at least one in there. 2007's Transformers. Yeah. I don't like it. Uh, I've not liked any of these movies ever. I thought again, if you're gonna do a big budget Transformers movie, sure, the effects are there. Michael Bay, probably the guy to do the job. But went to see it opening night, thought it was garbage. Can't wrap my head around how many people still give it a pass. And I know this was the one that Spielberg was sort of most directly involved with and uh, that 
you know, this movie tries to sort of crack a, a storytelling beat by having it be about the relationship between this kid and his first car. And I just disagree that that's what this movie's about. We were just arguing about this movie over dinner. Not you and me, mm. but with a group of people, right? Weren't we out at Transformers? Fla- weren't we at Flashback? I mean, you were on the other end of the table. Maybe okay. I don't know. I was just I was getting all worked up because people were like, no, the first one's still good. Like, no, no, it is not. And I knew from the first here's because they brought up something about um, the scene where like that. It was funny. The scene where like his parents come home and all the Transformers have to like hide behind trees. Mm -hmm. And that to me, again, is indicative of just what a fucking idiotic movie it is. Um, just turn into cars, guys. That's what you do. Like your thing is that you turn into cars. So just turn into cars and then the parents won't ask why there are robots hiding behind the trees. But again, we have to go for this dumb comedy beat, uh, because it's Michael Bay and he's the worst. Yeah. I just, I don't like any of these movies. Adam. Yeah. I, I, uh, so two things. One is I, I went to the movies today and before the movie was the trailer for Bumblebee. Have you seen the trailer for Bumblebee? Yes, I have. It looks Based just on the trailer. Okay. I don't want to see it. Yeah. It looks like the best Transformers movie. See, the thing I can't wrap my head around is a lot of people are like, oh, it looks very Spielberg. It looks like the Iron Giant. And I'm like, it no. looks like a fucking Transformers movie. <laughs> yes. Like, I don't understand. Like, what? I just think that by like making it just about like actually this relationship between one person and this one car instead of like. There's all these robots and they're fighting and blah, blah, blah. I'm not – again, I don't plan to see it. I'm not even saying it's going to be good. I just yeah. think based on the trailer, going smaller might be better. Okay. And then I also in the trailer, I, I'm i super – this might be the most embarrassed I've been all year. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear what you're about to say. So there's a voiceover and it's this very like <clears> – <throat> dramatic voiceover and i was just like is this the i have a dream speech but it's just bernie max speech from the first transformers <laughs> i haven't seen that trailer. and then i was I just, just seen like it. yeah and i was just like at first like because they they mix the sound differently so they make it sound like he's giving it at like you know like in washington dc <laughs> i don't remember bernie mac being in transformers yeah he's, he's like the, the guy who sold <laughs> bumblebee to shia labeouf but yeah i was like and then when i realized what it was i'm like oh god like it seems like every time I see the Bumblebee trailer, yeah. I see two other trailers that look exactly like it. Yes. One is Robot Dog. Yeah. Oh, AXL. Yes. Yeah. And then there's one other one. And there it's like the same movie about like this kid and his artificial intelligence <laughs> oh, is friend. It, is Kin the other one with like the yeah. alien? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Um, when I see Christ. the preview for AXL, I'm always like, this looks like the biggest piece of shit. Ooh, Thomas Jane. <laughs> And I'm mad that Thomas Jane's in it because now I know I'm probably going to watch it at some point. Um, no, I Bumblebee at least is directed by Travis Knight, who did Kubo and the Two Strings. So I don't know. Let's hope that he doesn't get unsullied. Or he, yeah. Is that right? Uh, I'm not sure. OK. Um, and then, uh, I, yeah, I don't like Transformers. Uh, the first one's I don't even know if I think it's the best one, because at least three has like the cool yeah. Chicago stuff. Yeah. Um, but I remember that I went to see it on 4th of July, 2007, and then my two friends and I went to Hooters afterwards. And that yeah, seems that like seems the, like a perfect that night. seems like the exact experience Bay intended. <laughs> yeah, that Michael Bay intended. It's not a good movie. I remember going to 4th of July like the next day. My wife's family does this big barbecue and her younger cousin and all his D-bag friends had all seen it. And they were arguing with me that it was the best movie they had ever seen. And I was getting very upset. 
And this is where uh, sort of the Transformers defense became codified and it applies to other movies as well but their whole argument for why it was good was because it had giant robots fighting it was like well at the bare minimum it should have fucking giant robots fighting it also has to be a good movie about giant robots fighting just having the thing that you're advertised to have doesn't make doesn't mean you deliver a good movie um and i've heard that defense used so many times it's it's uh, i think before transformers it was these snakes on a plane defense what do you want it has snakes on a plane <laughs> like well i would like a decent movie with snakes on a plane not this piece of shit i i um My favorite transformer though for the record yeah. is that shy buff transformed into Haley steinfeld <laughs> i'm on board with that i um i saw like you like you both i saw this opening weekend in 2007 i was i was tricked I tricked myself into seeing the first three uh, Transformers films in the theater, and I haven't seen any of them since then. But I will say this about the first one, and I'm by no means defending the movie in any shape or form, because I really didn't like it the first time I saw it. But for me, if Transformers represents anything, it was to me the tipping point for when I thought CGI effects could be passable. And I thought a lot of the effects in the film looked really, really good. Now, that being sure. said, the, the movie... The movie's a mess, and I've I haven't rewatched it in in several years. But I I remember being in the theater, going there are there are one to one shots here that look fantastic. So I give that movie credit. That being said, I think the CGI got worse in the subsequent sequels. So I think yeah, the way they shot it got worse because it just became a bunch of ones and zeros mushed together, and like you couldn't make any sense of it. Well, and the aesthetic is so weird. The way that they've designed the Transformers, yeah. it's just all weird metal jagged angles and you can't tell what anything is because it's, it's been so over-designed that it you can't make anything out. It's like a Pep Boys threw up on it. Exactly. Okay, let's see. All right, Adam. Oh, what a coincidence. Punisher, 2004. Ooh, the Punisher. I like the Punisher. Tom Jane and Johnny Travolta. <laughs> yeah. So what a coincidence. Oh my, and Samantha Mathis. <gasps> and Will Patton. And Will Oh my Patton. God, the Punisher is like your perfect movie. How do we never figure this out? I believe this is what they call in the biz four quadrants. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I really, really like the Punisher. <laughs> like way more than anyone else on earth. Um, when Pun I like Punisher Warzone also, yeah. but when I found out like that the part had been recast, I was just like blasphemy. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Tom Jane is my Punisher. Yeah. Hashtag I stand with Tom Jane. I'm like not my Jack Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, I I think Travolta's having fun as the bad guy. I like Will Patton because he's Will Patton and he's awesome. And I think the Punisher like has some really good. 90s ish action sequences it's just it's it's just a fun meathead movie i really like it great friend of the show my friend uh phil Giovanno. he actually directed the punisher dirty laundry short yeah yeah mm -hmm. so um patrick what are your thoughts on the punisher i uh okay um <laughs> i i agree with adam in that i think it's a good decent i'll say 90s action movie um I think it's kind of a bad Punisher movie, which is fine. I think if you just took that name away and the skull design and it was called something else, like a, just a weird Death Wish remake or something, I'm totally on board. Um, I think 
removed of some of the comic book stuff, it, it gets a little tonally confused because there are certain things that are directly from the comic book that feel out of place in a straightforward action movie, even if it's like Mr. Bumpo or um, what's his name? The wrestler, Kevin, uh, Nash. Kevin Nash as the big Russian guy. It just gets a little cartoonish in those sequences, but um, it's just kind of a straightforward action movie. I think it's decent, kind of fun. Uh, you know, I think, each of the three Punisher movies have their own different charms. I like the the Dolph Lundgren one as an 80s action movie. If this one had come out in the 90s, I like this as a 90s action movie. I remember at the time feeling like, oh, okay, Marvel is kind of new and this is really their first stumble. But like, who am I kidding? They'd already released the Hulk at this point, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Or just Hulk, right? So uh, no, this was not their first <laughs> stumble at all. This movie's totally fine. And I will tell you this, it's definitely set in Tampa, Florida, and not New York. <laughs> I know this because I go to Tampa at least twice a month, and I only live about 90 minutes from there. So, But it's it's that's definitely Tampa, and they're not even trying to hide the fact that it's not. I think you No, need, which is good. Yeah, so because I think that just speaks to the fact that it was a... I think this, they were working with a very low budget for this film by big-budget action film standards. This was a, a rather modestly budget film. Um, my thoughts, I saw, I remember seeing this in the theater and, and I, I admit to really, really liking the movie when I left the theater. I just thought it was, uh, an entertaining ride. I thought the massacre of his family was a little bit, a little bit much, but, um, I guess that was the tone they were going for. But then to just juxtapose that with sort of the, the, the comic tones that you mentioned, Patrick, with the, with the rush and everything. So it was tonally a little all over the place and i've i've come to realize that after sort of revisiting it about a year ago but i remember really really liking this movie the first time i saw it have either of you guys seen isn't there like a director's cut with like war flashbacks i have not i have okay. not i haven't either so, I, i'm probably thought, not gonna i thought it was funny at the time that so thomas jane's you know he was married to samantha mathis and he's got a son and they're murdered and then like he's kind of squatting in this apartment building and like Ben Foster, Rebecca Romaine, and I think it's John Panette. Yeah. Um, may you rest in peace. May you rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, very funny in stand up. I saw him do stand up once. It was very good. Um, yeah. And they, yeah, they're like, no, we're your new family. And right. if I were Thomas Jane, I'd be like, you're not, it's not the same guys. It's and they like, come directly yeah. out of the comic book. And oh, it's did like, they? Yeah. Okay. And it's like, you don't need that stuff. Like, yeah. I remember that weekend I saw I saw like the Punisher on Saturday and I think on Sunday I saw man on fire and I was like, oh, if anything, yeah. that should be called the Punisher. Yeah, right. That's yeah. an interesting double bill. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, and uh, this is for you, Patrick. We have 2010's the town. So the town came out uh, the first year that we were doing our podcast and I like the town a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of really good stuff in it. I think there's some stuff that's not great. Somebody reminded me that Jeremy Renner is pretty good in it. And then I felt bad about how much shit we gave him on a recent episode <laughs> talking about Mission Impossible. Uh, because, yeah, he's fine. He's good in it. I think he was Oscar nominated for that movie, right? It's like you guys completely forgot about SWAT. <laughs> <laughs> I like him in SWAT. I yeah. like SWAT. SWAT's good. Um, yeah, I like the cast quite a bit. There's so much that I like about the movie, honestly. And so in 2010, when we started this, my whole thing was like, I think it came out in 2010. Yeah. yeah. My whole thing, the first year of this podcast was like, every movie should be at least as good as the town. 
And then great movies are better than the town. But like the town is very good and serviceable and delivers exactly what you want from a movie called the town. So I like it. It's not a movie I think I've ever gone back to. Adam? Yeah, it's a great TNT movie. Um, (laughs) I like it a lot. It's very watchable. Um, I remember being very impressed with Renner and um, Blake Lively is very good in it, too. Uh, The shootouts are great. Um, I like the use of the locations. Um, It feels very local um, and not like studio set dressing and things like that. Um, So, yeah, I I think I might like it a little bit more than Patrick, uh, just because I think it's uh, about as good of a crime movie as we've gotten this decade maybe Maybe. yeah Yeah, Yeah, probably so yeah it's it's uh my second favorite of the ben affleck directed movies is gone baby gone the first yeah 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 Yeah. i think i think each movie is worse than the last one that he's directed so yeah a lot of people go argo first oh no i don't don't get that yeah i I take the town or gone baby gone over Argo. as would i yeah and i would take live by night over all of them (laughs) just kidding everyone no one ever see that movie well i would that would be a good double bill with Gotti. That would be a fun night. I, you actually, both of you just basically asked, answered the question I was going to ask, which was, you know, Affleck as a director from Gone Baby Gone to the town to, to Argo and then, of course, Live by Night, which I still haven't seen. Have either of you seen Oof. that film? Yes. Yeah, I kind of like it in a guilty pleasure way, oh. but I'm very aware Oof. that it's not good. Um, <laughs> Rob and I like to joke that Ben Affleck is so CrossFit that he's almost too wide for the frame. He wears very ill-fitting suits. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Movie. He's it's completely weird. miscast. Yeah. What? Where? Where does he go wrong? Because you know, uh, Gone Baby Gone, I think is an amazing film. I really like the town. Yeah. I think Argo is. <clears throat> um, I I think. Argo is extremely factually inaccurate as a Canadian. Um, I'll just say that he really kind of glossed over the, the help that the Canadian government offered. And that's really not mentioned too much in the film. I mean, I know they stay at the Canadian ambassador's house, but the Canadians actually played a, a far more significant role and that was completely glossed over. So for that point alone, I, I, I not a big fan of Argo. But Even, to be fair, but to be fair, Dana, it's called Argo, not you <laughs> this is true i'm speaking i'm speaking on behalf of an entire nation right now you've got to bear with me it's it's a, i it's listen a, to your impassioned defense but yes, not, not one word registered it's a burden this is a burden i have to carry with me everywhere i go so so uh but i'm just curious as to where why such a major misstep with live by night? And I guess the only way I'm going to answer that is to see the film. But if you could save me the two hours and just tell me, you know, wh- I, where does he go so wrong? With I this think film? we don't have the two hours. Like, <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't know what happened because you watch it and you just can't. I can't reconcile it as the work of the same guy who made those other three movies. Uh, so I honestly don't know. Is this what his, is this his blank check film? I mean, it must be right because Argo won the Oscar. So yeah. uh, it, it's disappointing because I was excited about him as a director, and there was sort of this Ben Affleck renaissance, and now he seems to be on the downslide again. Where yeah, it felt like Ruben Fleischer went from Gangster Squad right to Live by Night. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> Gangster Squad. Yeah, it's uh, they're about equal. I would say. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. So let's see. Adam, you're up. And we have 2009's Terminator Salvation. Next. 
Patrick, would you like to take a swing at this? <laughs> no, one? I've seen I've seen it, but I mean, Terminator Salvation is. Um, I mean, I was already off board on the Terminator franchise because Rise of the Machines is so profoundly shitty. Um, but I wasn't ready for how bad Salvation is. Um, I remember this was like the Terminator where they were kind of going for Transformers and Terminator. Um, I remember that John Connor's still listening to You Could Be Mine, and I thought that was funny. Um, it's just, it's really dull. And like the Terminator movies have a real knack since Terminator 2, since after Terminator 2. <laughs> Of just trying, of basically just putting in the dumbest thing that you could do, like making it way too either complicated or just kind of just un, just the in, the idea itself is uninteresting that they're diving into. And um, I remember it was during, and I'm I'll tread lightly. It was during a time where I wasn't convinced Sam Worthington was going to work as a movie star. <laughs> You've since been. <laughs> proven the error of your ways i assume i'm trying to think there's some recent stuff that he's been in where i'm just like oh he was kind of a bright spot in it what, what's what's the last few movies he's done that's a great question yeah is he what gonna... has worthington done of late <laughs> i mean he was oh a... he was in he was in hacksaw ridge and he was goodish and the, the but... less we talk about hacksaw ridge yeah right. i mean it's not a good movie but let's let's let me just because Patrick, I want to hear your thoughts on salvation, but I, I just, I'll just go ahead and ask two follow-up questions of both of you. Your thoughts on salvation, both of your thoughts on Genesis, which was a walkout for me. Forty-five minutes in, I was out. And thoughts on a upcoming Terminator film, which is in production, which will star a seventy-one-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton. So, Patrick, please. The first two Terminator movies are very, very dear to me. I think they're about as good as action movies get. I don't think there's been a good sequel since. I, there are things in Rise of the Machines that I like, in particular the ending. Um, I don't like Terminator Salvation for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't think McGee is an especially good director. I thought Christian Bale was boring. Sam Worthington it, it comes closest to being the best thing about it. But, uh, you know, there was the movie had a ton of baggage between the Christian Bale freak out that went so public and they kind of rewrote the ending after the original ending had leaked out um, what was supposed to happen. And so some things they, they had to change. You know, it, it's a movie where like John Connor was not supposed to be the star of the movie. And then once Christian Bale signed on, all of a sudden it became the Christian Bale movie instead of what it was supposed to be, which was this movie about this robot named Marcus played by Sam Worthington, who kind of then takes a backseat. The thing I will give Terminator Salvation credit for is that it is not just a remake of The Terminator, which every other sequel has been. I don't particularly like what it does with the movie, uh, with the story that it tells, but at least it's doing something different. And it's another example of, you know, unfortunately, there's all this stuff in fandom where fans think that they want to see certain things played out. Well, I want to see the Clone Wars. Um, no, you don't. I want to <laughs> see them steal the plans for the Death Star. Eh, maybe you don't. I want to <laughs> see the war with the machines. Hey, Salvation says, no, you don't. Some things are just better left, you know, without us having to see it. So I, I give Salvation credit for not just being Terminator Redux, which every other sequel has been most egregiously uh, Genesis, which 
Adam didn't walk out of, but he did walk around during <laughs> just to <laughs> avoid seeing the whole movie. Um, I have zero interest in a sequel. Why the hell? I mean, it's Jurassic Park at this point. It's like, how many at-bats yeah. do you get when they're all bad? Why do I think this new one is going to be good? Having said that, um, if you are a Terminator fan, you should be watching uh, or you should be watching. You should have watched or pick up on Blu-ray the, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which is the best Terminator thing post-Terminator 2. Yes. All right. Excellent. And Patrick, to you, 2009's Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie version. Well, listen. Uh, you found the right guy. <laughs> you found the, this is like Adam asking Adam about the Punisher. Um, I am a fan of Rob Zombie movies. I do not hate 2007's Halloween. I think it's half of an interesting movie. Um, Which half? The first half, I okay. think, is more interesting than the second when he just kind of remakes Halloween two. I, I've said this before, I think, but 2007 Halloween is one of two movies that like I've lost sleep over. Uh, the first was Lost Highway because I was trying to figure out like what happened in that movie, like what is the actual plot of that movie. And then Halloween, I literally lost sleep the night I saw it because I was trying to figure out like why, what, what was he doing? Why did that appeal to him? What was, what was he trying to do? I couldn't sleep. Anyway, I like Halloween two way more. Um, because I think he kind of gets to make his own movie. I think it is unrelentingly ugly, but I think it's one of the few kind of horror movies or slasher movies that really tries to deal with the fallout from the previous movie. I think it's a movie that's sort of about the PTSD experienced by characters who survive uh, an encounter with this murderer, and I think they process it very differently. I think the way that Scott Taylor Compton is presented is is unappealing and uh, grating, but I think it's interesting, especially in comparison to like what they do with Daniel Harris. I think Brad Dourif's performance is great, and I think the movie honestly is worth watching just for a scene that I believe only exists in the director's cut that in incorporates some childhood home video of Daniel Harris that is like just devastating. I think. I think the movie's really, really interesting and way better than a lot of people give it credit for. Okay. Uh, Adam? I completely agree. Um, I think it's a really, really good horror movie. Um, and it's... So I, I wrote something recently about Halloween H2O, and I, I said that I thought that that movie helped make Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode more interesting with the depth that they went into in Halloween H2O when you revisit the original Halloween and Halloween 2. And Halloween H2O is one path that Laurie Strode could take. And then Rob Zombie, I think, doesn't get credit, but he goes, what's the other path that Laurie Strode could take? And the thing that I find so kind of, I don't even say moving, but just impactful about Halloween 2 is that it's just, it's this poor young woman's death march. She's faded to this outcome and it's really tra it's a tragic movie it's a tra like the arc of the two movies is once you realize okay this is where it's going um i think it works as really good drama i think that the opening sequence in the hospital um in halloween 2 where they're playing um moody blues i think is it Moody yeah, Blues? Yeah. yeah, okay. Um with Knights in White Satin. I think like I think Rob Zombie's like really good at taking like being one of those directors where it's like you know he has a song in his head that he wants to put in a movie, but he finds a way to make it really work in the movie. 
Uh, I think that sequence is Except terrific. for Love Hurts in the original Halloween. <laughs> I don't even think that's that bad. Oh, come on. <laughs> the stripping and the sitting on the porch, like waiting for mom to come home. Have you ever been to a strip club? Sometimes yeah, love guess, does. Sometimes what? you do feel Love Hurts. Then it no totally matter. pays off. At yeah. the end of Halloween 2, they play like this weird, slow, quiet, ethereal Love Hurts. And yeah. I'm like, doubling down on the Love Hurts. <laughs> yeah. Zombie. I admire that. Yeah. At strip clubs, I only want to hear either Love Hurts yeah. or anything Buck Cherry. <laughs> The um, so, um, go ahead, please. No, I like. I, no, I was just. I was just gonna say. I really uh, like Halloween two so much, and I apologize to you, Dana, if you are one of these people. No, I am. I apologize I, in advance. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. All I was gonna say is, if I hear somebody tell me that Rob Zombie is one of the worst directors they've ever seen, then I know immediately I never need to listen to this person's <laughs> opinion on movies. That well. they just don't. They can't. Put, go past their own prejudice. Let me, let me just go ahead and put this to, to to this issue to bed right now. I think, and this is a personal opinion, I think The Devil's Rejects is a phenomenal film, and I I, I don't know how you guys stand on that movie. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses is a movie that I have warmed up to. Uh, the Devil's Rejects I just thought was terrifying on so many different levels. I thought it was the use of music. I thought the Everything about that film was disturbing, but purposely disturbing. And I really thought it was a fantastic film. I yeah. was not a big fan. I'll, I'll openly admit that I was not a big fan of the Halloween remake for the opposite reason of Patrick in that I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't getting into the, the sort of the backstory of Michael Myers, the, the, the understanding what what his childhood was like and it was i mean it works for a lot of people it wasn't working for me and i did, uh, and then the the second half of the movie is uh, almost a beat for beat remake of the original yeah. film for so for that reason i wasn't completely on board with the 2007 uh the 2009 halloween that's its own movie i mean it really doesn't i mean with with carrying continuing an arc from 2007s i mean you've got the returning characters but it is uh, one thing I can say about that movie is it goes in directions that I never expected it to go. Yeah. And so I, but I'm, I'm also not as well versed in Rob Zombie films because I, I think that's the extent of the Rob Zombie films that I've seen, but I certainly would not call him the worst director of all time. He has a very specific aesthetic that a lot of people don't like, which I get. It's like everyone's dirty and everyone says fuck and he plays classic rock. Like I get not being into the aesthetic. And I feel like uh, I thought Lords of Salem was super interesting and probably my favorite of his movies, but it was so sort of roundly rejected by so many people that I think he kind of retreated to something safe. And 31 is my least favorite Rob Zombie movie because it plays almost like a parody of a Rob Zombie movie. I mean, it's like everything that's least interesting about him is, is in 31. Um, but up until that point, I think he's, really interesting well adam what are your thoughts on house of a thousand corpses i mean it's just a devil's rejects rob zombie because you 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 said mm -hmm. anybody who doesn't think he's a good filmmaker is not somebody's opinion you want but what what are your thoughts as far as him um where did how do his films rank for you because i'm very curious yeah um i think that he's for for a person who didn't start out as a filmmaker i think he's kind of a born filmmaker like i he's so assured in what he wants to do. And I think that he achieves what he wants to do almost all the time. Um, 
Devil's Rejects, I think, is his best movie. Lords of Salem is pretty close. Um, Lords of Sa- the, the thing that uh, I think Lords of Salem shares with Halloween 2 is that they're both very sad movies. Yeah. Um, and that is something that is special in horror when like you have a, a movie that works as dramatically where you're that sad at the end of it and not just kind of shocked by it. Um, uh, yeah, the devil's rejects, I think is just, it, it, it was such a shock too, because it, I like house of a thousand corpses. I think it's charming in a weird, bizarre like way. Um, but you could tell he was just kind of throwing everything at the wall. It's almost like when you're watching like an athlete and in their rookie season, you can tell they're just making tons of mistakes, but there's a lot of glimmers of potential. And then the next season they come back and they're just like a completely, you know, they worked in the off season and they're like (laughs) this great player now. And that's what the devil's rejects felt like to me. Um, Halloween, you could kind of tell that he had like one foot in one foot out. Um, that this was the clear next move for him. This was the jump to the big leagues with the, you know, the 3000 screen release and everything like that. Something very, um, you know, that an IP that will get him a lot of attention. Um, and then, yeah, Halloween two is the movie that he really wanted to make. Um, and then, uh, 31. Yeah. That's a heartbreaker because it felt like he was sort of, um, not able to, from what I've read, it's, he wasn't able to make, the movies that he wanted to make after Lords of Salem. So he had to go back to his stock and trade, the brand that he had already established for himself, even though he sort of didn't want to go down that road again. Um, And I, I, and obviously I feel, you know, maybe a little silly for saying like, I'm not going to listen to your opinion on movies if you don't, like I, I don't care like if you don't like Rob Zombie, but if you're and I'm speaking more about critics. Sure, sure. Just just regular I, people. I, just, I didn't want to um, lose you as a listener of my show. That's why I was like, oh, I want to make sure we're established. No, no, no. That's it's not, fine. The, it's not that people have to like him. There's just a snobbery to just it. Just to say like, that he's the worst. Yeah, is, there's, is unfair. There's just like such a like there's such a dismissal of him. Right. Like it reminds me of a lot of something that's gone away, but in the 90s. People would shit can horror shit on horror movies just because they were a horror movie and it didn't have like Demon Knight got dismissed and like people under the stairs and Tales from the Hood and a lot of like really great horror movies from the 90s were just like, oh, it's horror. That's, you know, a misbegotten genre like i it, it reminds me of like rock critics where you're like reading a review and it's like do you even like music like what is this <laughs> i belong to a critics group and i'm very much alone on rob zombie island i'm sort of ostracized because i'm a fan of rob zombie movies because they are some of the people that adam is talking about That's where it's like oh it's very interesting he is the absolute lowest of the low according to some well, all right. That's no, I'm, I, I'm not in that camp. I am certainly somebody who, who can see a lot of good things in a lot of, in, in the films that I've seen of him. That being said, if I was to watch one Rob Zombie movie tonight that I haven't seen, should it be Lords of Salem? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's the one I'll watch. You, you can almost not ever see 31 and you would be fine. Again, this is coming from somebody who likes all of his other movies. I just don't. I don't really get anything out of 31. What? I remember I saw 31 at like a sneak preview thing. It was like, a, it was like a one night yeah. Fathom events thing. And Patrick couldn't go and he emailed me afterwards and he's like, so? And I was just like, I don't want to talk about it <laughs> because I didn't want to be <laughs> the person to like break. Yeah. yeah. 
what are your thoughts on the upcoming Halloween film that's coming out this October, which is supposed to, from what I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, it is following the events of 1978's Halloween and nothing else, including Halloween 2. That's and correct. Interesting to see that Danny McBride was one of the co-writers of this. And what do you guys, what do you think? Or, I mean, is this something you're going to go see? Are you lining up to see it opening weekend? Or are you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, uh, uh, yeah. 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 This, this is kind of my dedication to the Halloween franchise. Okay. Um, the night that Rob Zombie's remake came out, I was on a date and the, the Halloween uh, was going to premiere at midnight. This was back when they didn't do it at 7 p.m. It was it was at midnight. And I had a choice of either going home with my date and probably sleeping with her that night or God, going I you so much right or, now. or going to see Rob Zombie's <laughs> Halloween. And I made an excuse so I could go see Halloween. <laughs> Well, the thing is, the sex for the first half would have been like interesting and different, and yeah. then the second half it would have just been beat for beat, like all the other sex you'd ever had. It would have just been a death march. <laughs> um, no, so I, yeah, I, at seven o'clock Thursday, October eighteenth, yes. I will be there. Yes. I will see Halloween. Um, that being said, I, the trailer doesn't get me more or less excited than I was before I saw the trailer, and then also I am a little tired of the trend of the side quill or the requel, which is, Hey, forget all that other stuff because we're embarrassed by it, which they, and they shouldn't be. Um, but because they don't want to follow that continuity and they want to start their own, then they're doing all these like 0.5s. So it's like, this is Halloween 1.5. And it's like, hi, if I wanted that, I would have watched FX dinner in a movie. Schmucks. <laughs> so I'm kind of in the same camp as Adam. Obviously, I'm excited that there's a new Halloween movie. I'm excited that Jamie Lee Curtis is involved and that Carpenter's doing the score. And um, there's a lot of interesting people. You know, David Gordon Green can be hit or miss for me, but I'm I'm interested to see what that looks like and what Danny McBride writing it sounds like. Judy Greer is in it. And we're big fans of Judy Greer. Um, so, of course, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Do I think it's going to be great automatically? No. And to be honest, I'm a little frustrated with the trailer reaction because everybody in our sort of horror circle is is losing their collective shit over how great it looks. To me, it looks an awful lot like the Rob Zombie Halloweens, yeah. you know, aesthetically and uh, sort of the the brutal tone of it. So I'm like, hey, all you assholes who have been shitting on those movies for 10 years. Um, why are you so excited? Like it's it's it, there's something very selective about the excitement. Um, but yeah. hey, new Halloween. It's weird that um, those the people who do get like the, they'll use the David Gordon Green excuse and i'm just like are you forgetting that like you don't unconditionally love every david gordon right. green movie it's right. like they forget about the sitter and your highness and all this stuff like that they're just like he's only made perfect movies <laughs> i kind of like your highness by the way okay that was a walkout for me <laughs> i don't, I don't yeah. blame you <laughs> all right so patrick adam thank you so much for being on the show again this was awesome as I expected it would be. This was awesome. Did not disappoint. Good. Thanks. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Dana. So thanks for having us on. I almost always disappoint. So this is a relief. <laughs> and uh, for, for listeners that want to check out F This Movie, can you give them the, the details as far as where to find it, social media links and things like that? 
Sure, yeah. Uh, Fthismovie.com. We got stuff going up every day, most of it written by Adam. Uh, we have a podcast <laughs> that comes out once a week. You can find us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Fthismovie. And we're on Facebook and sort of Instagram, but not really. But really, just check out the site, listen to the podcast. It's good. And I know you're going to be soon gearing up for Scary Movie Month which yeah, is... Yeah, we are. We're already in it. You're already in it? Can you give, can you give any... Okay. I think we spent so long talking about Rob Zombie and Halloween. <laughs> so, can you give any of the listeners any taste of what to expect with Scary Movie Month? This uh, Just a little little sneak peek. Patrick and I are going to... We, we always do one show um, on just the two of us, and it's going to be either Tales from the Hood 2, but if it's really direct-to-video-y, then we're going to go with Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Okay. So that'll be right. coming up. Um, I know I'm going to be doing an article on Splice because I think that's su- a super underrated it 2000s totally horror movie. Um, and maybe Stuck also. That's another super underrated yeah. 2000s horror jam. Uh, I will be. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, we, we do a commentary at the beginning of the month. We have the scary movie challenge which is anytime you see a scary movie you post a seven word review on f this movie's website and it's a lot of fun and they're almost always really funny and clever and insightful and uh we we get a real kick out of those so it's a it's a big horror party so if you're a, a horror movie fan it's the place to be check us out i can't commit to it a hundred percent but i'm i'm pretty sure i'm gonna watch mirrors this year no you're not i'm pretty <laughs> sure this is gonna be the year that it happens wow I, i've always wondered if of the events you do with f this movie f this movie fest june exploitation and, and scary movie month is which one is this is scary movie month sort of the one you had your most anticipated for the most anticipated time of the year for you because you know it seems that horror movies are you know what you guys seem to be most excited to talk about uh, is is this the best time of the year for f this movie i think so i mean it's it's certainly the one that i enjoy the most um because i love watching horror movies and i think a lot of the people that visit our site look forward to this the most because they tend to be horror movie fans i think that's how a lot of people found us um there's something fun about f this movie fest because it's just a day and and a week leading up to it um scary movie month can get a little (laughs) exhausting on day 30 you're just kind of like holy shit um June's Boydation is the most exhausting, by the way. Uh, but yeah, this is this is my favorite. Excellent. All right. Once again, Patrick Bromley, Adam Riskley. Adam Riskley, sorry. Once again, Patrick Bromley, Adam Riskley. I'm saying you're, I'm, I can't pronounce your last name, Adam. I'm just Riskley. Riskley? I'm sorry. Just Riskley. Riskley Adams. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. I can't believe I... You're like, is that the bad Jew, or is it Riskly Adams, or is it both? I can't leave this in the episode. I'm so sorry. Once, once again, Patrick and Adam, thank you so much for joining me on How Is This Movie. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. Adam, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I, I couldn't No, get, I you couldn't should totally that. leave it in there. All I right. like Riskly. I've never <laughs> been called Adam Riskly before. I've heard most everything, but I do like, I kind of like Riskly. 
The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.